Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky coming to you uh, moments, just moments, Andy, after the Lakers lose uh, to the Wizards in in overtime. 127-124, the final score. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that and, and where the Lakers are and LeBron, uh, who played 43 minutes tonight, looks very tired. We are going to bring you in a great Great uh, conversation earlier today with Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther, the authors of Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, uh, The Dilemma of the Modern Fan. It is a great book, um, well worth reading. Um, we'll bring you that conversation in just a few seconds. But um, it's it's worth taking a minute or two to talk about this one, Andy, because um, – and hold on, let me – <laughs> if we're gonna do that. We should take the picture of the book away. Uh, you know, we're <laughs> promotion, but um, well, it's, right, it's so, just an awkward way to talk about something that isn't that book. No, it's true. Um, so <laughs> that's not even so much you know over promoting it is just it's just bad. It's janky. Bad, it's bad planning. Um, so I gotta admit, like I, I had all my Wizards jokes earlier in the in the game when the Lakers go up by like 15, 16 the first half. They finished the first half up by 14. And I'm you know, I got like, hello, it's it's the the magical powers of the Wizards is they can even make the Lakers offense look good right now. And and I, I'm glad I didn't ever tweet that, not just because it's not that funny, but also because <laughs> it turned out that they lost <laughs> it's because they lost the game. It's like I, I knew better than to start making assumptions about what was going to happen in the second half of this game. And I'm glad I mean, I did, the, I'm glad I held my I'm in the words of Steve Mason, I kept my powder dry. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that would have kept you from getting snatched up by freezing cold takes is they wouldn't have thought it was funny enough to right. bother. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. Yeah, I mean, there's look, I, um, I, I find this one. I, I talked about it on the podcast, uh, which we put out today, and we'll get back out because that section we spend on fatigue seems no less relevant now than it did last night when we recorded. Um, I. I am not that annoyed in the sense that I said last night on the show, like they could lose to Washington. Like, yep. I don't, they're with no Schroeder and no Davis. They're not that much better than anyone <laughs> in the, in the league. Uh, well, they've got major skill set issues and the talent isn't that. And especially better. too, it's one thing to try to overcome being shorthanded and being, uh, being deficit in terms of certain skill sets, like you were saying before, yes. Brian, being deficient, I, excuse me, I should say. It's another thing to try to do that when you are exhausted to the point where you look like you're about to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. like, like LeBron should just take the fine for every single post game, skip it, and get like an extra half hour of sleep. Like, like he is so dead-ass tired in these games it is affecting. We should call. We should call that dat. <laughs> he is dat right LeBron now. LeBron is man. dat. I mean, you can see it though. I mean, LeBron had great moments in this game. He he worked his ass off to get them back into it in the fourth quarter to push to overtime. And there were moments where he played like LeBron. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, he had some bad passes that we've seen of late that feel like turnovers that reflect the type of judgment you have when you're exhausted. He is settling for so many threes at this point. Like I, I, I actually texted you before the, the show started. I'm starting to feel like LeBron's incredible start from behind the arc 
has become kind of this curse in disguise where it's it's become now this thing that he feels like he can rely on even though he, he's really fallen off a cliff like in the last 10 to 15 games but it feels like something that he wants to go to because he is so tired like there was one possession Brian where he had Robin Lopez matched up on him on his heels giving him a lot of space to drive but at the same time mm-hmm. it's it's Robin Lopez he's going to be able to beat you would think this guy off the dribble no matter how much space Lopez is giving himself 21 seconds on the clock. He just puts up a three like it. He's, I think, just so exhausted. This has become his go to thing and he's not shooting it well enough. It's I think it's not just him. Uh, If you look at the, you know, I think one of the telling things in this box score, you know, they played an extra, you know, the 48 minutes, you know, plus the plus the five. They took 44 threes. For them, they hit at 34%, which is of late not that bad. Um, still not great, but not that bad. Only took 17 free throws and um, made 11 of them. And other than Harrell, who got there seven times, and Montrez played great, I thought, nobody got there more than three times. Like LeBron took 10 three-pointers and three free throws. And, you know, that that is that's a sign that, you're 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 not getting to the rim, and your 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 team is tired. And granted, the Lakers, when Schroeder doesn't play, when Davis doesn't play, those are two guys who get to the rim and take a lot of free throws. But like that's not a good that's not a good ratio. No, um, and it's a telling ratio. And I like I said, like the, I think the worst thing about tonight's game isn't the loss, which is annoying, but ultimately not that significant. It's forty three minutes. It's forty three minutes in a game. Like I was rooting for Bradley Beal. To just keep hitting shots because otherwise they're going to end up in double overtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and like, what's the point of that? I mean, you know, I I, t- I tweeted this out at Cam Brothers, and I'm not really kidding when I say this. I realize it's not possible, but if the Lakers could forfeit their next five games before the All Star break in exchange for getting two extra weeks of rest, I would take that in a heartbeat without thinking Can you imagine if that was possible like you could actually do that like you know what guys we'll take the l we're just resting tonight <laughs> they i do that in a second i think they should i think they should try my my plan that i put forward which is try to get themselves in that san antonio the, there is a downside to this and, and i i understand that but try to get themselves into that san antonio thing where or like the the grizzlies had earlier before where like everyone is in contact tracing and you're not even sure like does anybody actually have like tested positive for covid i don't know but like just get like nine guys in the contact tracing program so they just can't play well i that would do it the problem is then you got to make up those games i I don't want i was going to say i don't want that just forfeit the games (laughs) or or compromise and lebron lies that he was in contact, uh, that he was in close contact with somebody that may be COVID positive. Right. Just, just fake the need to go into the protocol. Right. You remember, you, you, you know, the other part of my plan was just have Schroeder drop off like an Amazon fresh delivery at LeBron's house. Like, is that enough? Like LeBron opens the door and he's like, oh my God, Dennis. And then like Dennis runs away. And then now LeBron's in the protocol. I, I feel like. And I don't that- think he, that would give him COVID. I it wouldn't give him COVID. Have I feel Dennis like, hold his breath. I feel like that's 
possibly a bridge too far to where the league investigates and says, what's up with that? Just lie. Just say you were around somebody. I feel like that's much simpler. You don't think they would buy Dennis Schroeder as a uh, Amazon Fresh delivery guy? Not unless you like get docked pay for games that you miss for being in the protocol. No, I don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> which by the way andy andy have you not been i mean ev- you've not seen the commercials everyone has a side hustle right now mm, everyone that's true. true working five you know what, you know, what you know what grandpa you know what benny used to call that pocket money mm-hmm. <laughs> just a little walking around money yeah because you don't uh, want to spend the principal no but and they just they need to rest like they just they need to get up to this period where everybody but LeBron will get to take some days off, <laughs> but they just they need to get. Oh to my that. god, that's really I, what it is. They got to figure out. A, they've got to figure out a way to get him out of that All Star game. Something. I mean, they just. That's really so what should, it is. wherever whatever hotel they're staying at, he should tunnel. I mean, that's really out. what the situation is right now. They just that's really what it comes down to. You can, you can try to analyze this stuff and take a look at things. I guess Frank Vogel could try, but the bottom line is. They're exhausted. They don't have the horses, and they're just going to have to try to get through this thing. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, the, the thing about it is, it's like you know, you you wonder at what point does something like because we are, I don't know. I mean, it's it's February, March, April, May, June. I guess is about it's like three months or something, whatever, before the playoffs start. Um, like. You, I wonder where the point is where some of this starts to become a pileup where the fatigue matters, um, or if it's something they can just work through. Because I think they are all physically and mentally tired. You know, I think uh, the the mental part of it. None of them getting a break. All of them coming back for a weird season, which is much more isolated than last season was. Um, I think there's mental fatigue there too, with guys who are younger and have, should have more legs. That 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 factors into this as well. They just they need at least a chance to refresh. And See, get like this. this is what if they aren't just good? So um, uh, Ahmed Yusuf asks, like they are. We know they're good because we watched them play when they had their whole team. Like that's not the issue. You can't judge us whether or not they're good. Their second and third best players aren't playing. Um, so of course they're not that good. Uh, but it's. It's just, I, I, my, you wonder at what point it becomes impactful. I think that's that's the question. Um, all right, so maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this. We got Sopan Deb coming back tomorrow uh, to the show, writes, uh, covers the NBA for the New York Times, great on pop culture and all that kind of stuff. We're going to have a great show tomorrow with Sopan. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about this stuff with him um, when, uh, when we have him on tomorrow. And in the meantime... Let's get to our interview that we did this afternoon with Kavitha Davidson and uh, Jessica Luther. Again, the the book is Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Um, and here we – oops, I screwed that up. Hold on. I'm sorry, Andy. I did not put the volume on uh, so they wouldn't have been able to hear it. I'm going to have to start over. <laughs> Okay. Um, Sorry about that. It's a it's a really good it's a really good book. It's not an easy read, and we we said this to Jessica and Kavitha. Like it it raises a lot of uncomfortable questions and a lot of uncomfortable issues, and does it in a way that is, you know, at the end with some optimism. But there is a lot of stark, unpleasant realities presented in there. But I would say it's also a very necessary read. All right, and good. I, I recommend good. that was a good that. vamp, a good Thank cover. 
uh, because now I got it right and we can actually play the interview where people can hear it. Here we go. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. I, I, I'm interested just to start, like what was the genesis of this of this book and uh, of this idea to you know to to go through uh and, and catalog these things the it way seems like have. you already stepped into it brian with what what felt like an <laughs> innocuous question based on kavitha and jessica's reaction to that we're laughing because we first of all really appreciate you guys having us on to talk about this we've just answered this question so many times and very happy to do it again but it's always jesus brian do better my no God. but it's more that like it's actually really hard for us to remember it's that so it's funny that we keep telling a story that we we keep both struggle to remember we don't well, feel feel free to make up a new one it's fine <laughs> i know <laughs> we should have, have a better be origin story kavita <laughs> we would have come up with one there been after we finished fight fighting those fight. aliens you know exactly. <laughs> talk about book topics um I mean, the kind of the genesis of our friendship and our working relationship is that there's just a very small community, but tight knit community of women sports writers on Twitter. And Jessica and I found each other through that. Um, and we both covered similar topics, um, you know, a lot of uh, sexual violence and a lot of, you know, kind of just the issues that come up in sports. Um, for me, working at Bloomberg at the time, it was, you know, a lot of like the financial stuff that I saw going wrong in, in sports and things like that. Um, and, you know, we actually signed a book deal before we ever met in person. It's one of the things that uh, that Twitter has actually been really good for, as wow. much as cool as it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we think we think it was around the time of the Super Bowl. It probably would have been 2016. Five, five years ago, Kavitha. Yeah, that's wild. Um, what is time? Um, but, uh, you know, and, and usually around the Super Bowl, you have all back when, frankly, there were just more blogs out, but um, you had all of these, you know, lists and blogs and, and things obviously geared toward women and obviously geared toward women that they assume not to be sports fans. And it was always something to the effect of like how to survive a Super Bowl party or the cheat sheet for talking to your boyfriend about the Super Bowl and, and, and things like that. And, you know, Jessica, like went to college because she loved her college football team and we're both professional sports writers and you don't have to do this professionally obviously to not need one of those guides but we just started it, it was just tiring at some point where it was just so clear that we were not the target audience for any of the writing or the media that was really out there mm -hmm. um and then of course we did the snarky thing and we were like we should just turn this on its head we should honestly because Jessica can tell this better than I can, but Jessica's husband's also not a sports fan at all. So that turns it on its head in itself. We should just write a snarky rejoinder to this geared toward men who probably don't know as much about sports as we do. Um, and, and, you know, see how it's like uh, Liz fair exile in Guyville, <laughs> <laughs> like basically just her response to exile on main street. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. thankfully, you know, we had a, a very, um, professional and talented editor and publisher at the University of Texas Press who massaged it into this much more serious and journalistic endeavor. Because <laughs> initially it was, it was pretty snarky, I'm going to say. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how, I don't know if Jessica's anything to add to that. Nope, that's it. You got it. it on. <laughs> is there enough cutting room floor material for the snarky version? Because there is a part of me that kind of wants to see it. I'd like, I would read the director's cut. <laughs> 
Do you know what's funny is we didn't actually get to writing those chapters except for one, and it ended up running in, of all places, Shondaland. Um, so it was how to date someone who doesn't know anything about sports or doesn't like sports. And we interviewed men, women, gay couples, straight couples, you know, and, and a variety of people. We interviewed women whose male partners didn't like sports and, and you know, vice versa. Um, and it just didn't go with the tone of the book. Mm -hmm. But it was it was super interesting. And as someone who has always only dated people who have loved sports, and currently I'm dating someone who does not care at all, it's it, it was an interest. It's an interesting thing to go back and read. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I, I always think we, as sports people, uh, Anne and I talk about this all the time. We all always are always overestimating the penetration that sports has, like the amount of people. Like I think it would be shocking to Lakers fans the amount of people who don't know who LeBron James is in Los Angeles who don't know who LeBron is and don't know he's on the Lakers and may not even know what the Lakers are. So, so it's is, is that, is that part of, do you think of, of what feeds into some of the stereotypes and some of the attitudes that get put upon people is just the, there's just the assumptions that people have about what they will and won't know. Um, just based on, you know, looking at you, you're a woman, you won't know this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think Avita and I have both experienced, I mean, mine, because I'm married to someone and I've been with him for decades now, golly. Uh, and we have so many social situations where men try to talk to him about sports and he just doesn't want to. He's like, no, please go talk to my wife. And then they don't want to. Uh, and that's just a such a common thing to experience, I think, for women in general. But I mean, we as sports fans, like, people hate bandwagon fans when you're a serious fan. Cause like, how dare you like show up at the last minute when it's fun uh, and, and care like there's this weird exclusionary thing in general around sports fandom, but there are definitely groups of people who are not seen as, as sports fans and Kavita mm -hmm. and I definitely don't look for a lot of people. We don't look like sports fans. Well, and sports fans, like, like Jessica said, sports fans themselves are their own gatekeepers. Like how many, how many, how many new Lakers fans are there that there's a whole swath of, of people who've been around, you know, maybe since Minnesota, I don't know, but like who, who would, who, who don't think that those are real fans, right? Um, the opposite is also true though. I think that, you know, if, if you look a certain way, if you're a white athletic looking white dude, someone probably assumes that you're going to be a sports fan. And that's just not always true. Um, and part of it is because we assume that like, you have to be, you have to like sports or you have to like watching sports to like be a true man or, or whatever. Um, and I know a ton of people who love sports. They love playing sports who just don't want to watch sports. And that's, you know, that's their own, that's how they mm -hmm. enjoy it on themselves. Um, so it's just been it's been it's been really interesting to see the the variety of people who do and don't fall into these categories. That's interesting, Kavita, because my husband is a marathon runner and so looks incredibly athletic and but right. then doesn't he could maybe talk tennis with people because he loves me and he learned how to talk about tennis. Oh. But yeah, otherwise he just doesn't want anything to do with it. Yeah, it's my wife is a really big sports fan, and that was actually the reverse experience for me because I think she was the first, if nothing else, she was the first girl I ever dated really seriously that I can recall that was a big sports fan. And like, like more than just say one particular team that she grew up with or, you know, like with her family or whatever, like she 
she'll watch a lot of sports. And, you know, she actually found it attractive. And I frankly kind of used it as an in that I worked in this industry because she had had the opposite experience for whatever reason. She said she had a difficult time meeting guys who actually liked sports. So, I mean, and, and, and it's funny, in certain ways, I think she may be a bigger sports fan than I am. She's certainly a more uh, loose cannon sports fan than I like whenever she's <laughs> watching the Cowboys or the Dodgers. Like, I don't even want to be in the same state, much less And fortunately, didn't realize the ramifications of what it means to marry a sports journalist. I, I think it sounds more glamorous, maybe, <laughs> oh. in that first meeting. Than <laughs> I, I think it, it really, it's still the idea of, no, you have to watch all those games or go to all those games. It, it's been a while, and I don't think that's entirely set in. But it's just, it's funny, though, how those expectations and stereotypes can get turned on their head a lot, both for men and women. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that, and we explore this in the book, one of the things that happens also is a ton of people who might be sports fans are just automatically turned off to it because they have all of these assumptions about what the space is like or what it would be like for them. And that's not just for people who are women or people of color. Like I know plenty of men, you know, I, I'm an obnoxious Ivy Leaguer. So I know plenty of men who don't think that it's- that's Say the school, Kavitha. Like Columbia. Um, I know plenty of, of, of men who, you know, who don't think that sports is an intellectual space or a space, or a space that intellectuals can exist in um, because it can be really hostile to different types of people. And so they don't think that it's for them. And then when I sit them down or I take them to a game, they inevitably have a great time because I'm fun and sports are fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but so I think that that's, that's one of those things that, you know, we, we're really trying to just make the industry better and more inclusive because we want everyone to love it as much as we do. And that that kind of leads to one of the things that I think is just interesting about the the title of the book even. When you're loving sports mm -hmm. when they don't love you back. Who traditionally hasn't been loved back by sports? And then the the the, the, the second part of that is who has and how willing are they to be loved in a different way? Um if you're going to include all the, you know, uh, have a more inclusive vision of 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 sports and and who is part of that world. Yeah, I think it's easier to say who has been included. I think sports <laughs> has been built as an exclusionary space, especially on the professional level and then sort of filters down, uh, but certainly for white, cisgendered, heterosexual men, right? That those are the people who tend to, um, that sports is built around and then everyone else has to fight their way in at some point in order to get any kind of space. And so who's left out is, actually pretty large in general. And I, I should have even said able-bodied uh, that, you know, there's a ton of disabled athletes and they're out there, but we barely ever even talk about them, forget thinking about them. Uh, and so I just think that this is sort of the historical roots of sport is it, this is how it has functioned, uh, especially in this country in the U S but that's, it's true in other places as well. Yeah. I, it is, I mean, as Jessica said, the, the, Groups of people who haven't historically been included in sports are, it's, it's a bigger number than those who have. And like she said, it, it really does come down to who we think are able to play sports and therefore able to understand them. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's. Or who are interesting to watch play them, which is like, it's all embedded in there too. Yeah. Right. Um, and also just the idea that, I mean, so many of our cultural institutions were not mixed spaces anyway, whether you're talking about gender or race or, you know, or other kinds of things. Um, I think the second part of your question is really interesting. If, if you're talking about, you know, what, 
the people who have been loved by sports historically needing to maybe adjust to being loved in a different way by them. I don't know if that's necessarily true. It might be. I mean, you know, one of our chapters is about racist mascots and there are certainly Washington football team fans who will have to love their team or and be loved by their team differently now that they can't call them that anymore. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, it's, it's this whole idea that when you've, when things have always been catered to you and, and included you, including other people feels like oppression. This is something that has been um, talked about in, in all other spaces before. Um, but it, it's really not as much of an adjustment as you might think, you know? Um, I think that people are just afraid of change. And I think that sports, sports more so than other industries and other cultural institutions tends to be built on inertia, that the way that something has always worked is the way it's going to continue to work. And why change it? Because it's pretty successful. These leagues keep making money no matter, you know, even when we're afraid for their revenues. Um, and, and, you know, these, you know, sports are a perpetual motion machine because of that. But be, given that, given that built in, you know, small C conservatism, um, sports can also just get better. Everything gets better when they're more diverse and there are more people involved in them, right? And I think that's the argument that that we're trying to make in the book. And I would say, I would just add that like, what Kavita said is correct, that we have this idea that sports are sort of stuck. Like there's rules and you follow them and that's how it is and the tradition and all those things. But also actually sports change all the time, constantly. Like we're always changing the rules. We're always, we're inventing new sports. Like these things are entirely made up and actually change all the time. So uh, part of it is, it's it's interesting that like, that's how it feels versus how it actually is in practice. And like, that's one thing we just wanted to draw attention to. Like in practice, these things are actually, they don't function that way. Well, no. I wrote about that very thing. Um, I wrote a column several years ago called God Doesn't Hate the Designated Hitter. And um, basically it was- <laughs> But he always should. I, I mean, I understand that I'm talking to Dodgers fans right now. So I understand right. the territory I'm You want to talk about make me- Born and bred National Leaguers more than anything. Talk about some making somebody question God. Well- If that's your opinion. The, God's the wisdom. The merits of the DH aside, the point of the column and- <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> So the column, the column was a very, I, I would like to think, sneaky allegory for marriage equality. Um, because what I did was I examined the word abomination. Whenever you read people talking about the DH, you know, again, whatever your feelings of the DH are aside, it's always couched in these terms of abomination. Like, yeah. this is, you know, this is morally wrong. This is completely, you know, wrong against the traditions of the game. This is wrong against the purity of what baseball is supposed to be and all of that. And you have that word and those same notions used about things like marriage equality. Um, the word abomination, and I talked to a biblical scholar about this, doesn't actually mean have like confer any kind of moral authority. It literally just means ritualistically improper. Done things before. It's interesting. There's no moral judgment on whether we should do that in the future, but this is just not how we've done things before. And anyone who's read any Henry Chadwick or anything knows that baseball is not how we've played baseball before, right? Um, so I was just trying to make the argument that there is no moral argument against the DH. I completely understand where you guys come from on that issue, though. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, because in reading the book and looking at the title in particular, you know, loving sports when they don't love you back and the idea of sports as an entity loving you back, I, I was wondering about whether or not that's actually even possible, just in the sense that 
sports ultimately the way it's being discussed now is you know it's a it's an entity you know it's a pretty vast entity but it's it's an entity nonetheless and entities in general don't function like that but they often love the way it's being defined now based on who or what they're told to love by the public and what it becomes important to love like hollywood for example in the last 10 or so years i think there's been more of an emphasis on content that has more representation and diversity in it and it's not perfect yet at this point in hollywood and there's certainly uh you could argue in times a performative element to it, but that change gets made, but it's not because Hollywood as an entity decided that it loved more. It happened because the consumption of the consumers of Hollywood said, you need to love this more. And I, I'm wondering if this is ultimately with sports incumbent on the fans and, and the people who would consume it to decide this needs to be loved more. Yeah, I mean, I I come from a sports business writing background. I've constantly made the argument that we can sit here and talk about equality as a moral imperative, but nobody's actually nobody who can actually change anything is going to if you don't give them a profit incentive. Right. Yeah. Washington didn't change their team name because Dan Snyder suddenly had a come to Jesus moment, right? No, he That's remains the same one. asshole as always. <laughs> one, and Jeff Bezos might soon be that next asshole, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've got hope. <laughs> um, but it, it's because Pepsi and Nike and hundreds of their investors pressured mm -hmm. them to get on the phone with him, right? So I think that, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think that one of the things we try to do with this book is we try to represent fans and like we said a, a broader swath of fans but we also try to have you know fans existing fans kind of look at look at ourselves a little bit right so much of the book is trying to recognize that athletes are workers and that they're doing a job and that they don't really owe us as much as we think that they do so much of of the book is trying to ask fans to be better as much as these institutions to be better um so i mean i agree that you know nobody like sports aren't just going to love us but it's also difficult because of what when our sports fandoms are formulated and what they're attached to, right? Often they're attached to our hometowns, our identities, our yes. families, you know? And that's why we feel what we might think is love and in lots of cases is. Um, and, and when that isn't reciprocated, it, it does hurt in some way. Yeah. And I will say like, maybe this will be true until I die which hopefully is decades from now. But every time I go to a women's sporting event in person, I cry when it starts. Like I get teared up to see women, oh. especially playing basketball, which I played when I was in middle school. And I just still like that. Those are the moments when it's like, oh, sports loves me back. Like there I am. I, I wrote a thing for the New York Times Magazine um, two Olympics ago about going to the 96 Olympics in Atlanta and seeing Lisa Leslie play basketball. And I was like a total, I'm six feet tall. You can't tell we're all sitting down. I'm six feet tall. And I was, I was 15 at the time and I didn't fit in my body and I felt weird and awkward all the time. And then suddenly these were like, these women were the toast of the town. And I had this feeling of like, maybe people think I'm a basketball, like maybe they think that that's me. And um, so I think we've had like, I still have those moments where I am like, oh, this is this is what sports does, right? Like where I feel that love back. And but yeah, I mean, anytime you're consuming in capitalism, certainly it'd be lovely to change everyone's hearts on everything, but I'm fine if it takes PR <laughs> pressure or something like that. I mean, sure. so much of my work is around sexual violence. And, you know, I don't think universities are gonna 
change on their own. That's why we're out here writing articles all the time. Yeah. And that's super effective. And I wish it was because they cared deeply in their hearts about the effect on survivors. But I mainly think they don't like bad press and worry about bottom lines. When, you know, and, and you guys in the book, you know, you you have questions in the book that center around individual athletes talk about, you know, sexual violence and you know, Greg Hardy, Aroldis Chapman, all, all kinds of the, the sort of the moral questions that fans have to grapple with and others that are tilt are sort of about systems, um, about more faceless entities, the NCAA, the Olympics, things like that. What is different, do you think, about the way that sports fans look at those things, um, the way they might differentiate between the 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 moral question of cheering for the team that has Aroldis Chapman or even Aroldis Chapman himself, or you know the World Cup, you know how, if that if that makes sense. Um. So when it comes to something like like an Aroldis Chapman, like someone who has been accused of doing something bad, I always go back to um, who the arbiters of our culture are um, and who gets to decide what is worthy and what is worthwhile. So like I always say, there's a reason Michael Jackson is canceled and Jackson Pollock isn't. And it's because as a society, we've decided that Jackson Pollock's contributions to us outweigh whatever he might've been accused to. Whereas, you know, Michael Jackson, some people have not decided this, others have. Um, and I think in sports, we might, like sports might exist on the lower end of that spectrum where some, where a lot of people will say that, um, you know, that an athlete's contributions to society are not enough to overlook um, some of the things that he or she might have been accused of. I think as fans, it it makes us, like we don't even want to hear it, right? There are, there are certain people who just purely want to use sports as an escape and the stick to sports things. And we've written a lot about why that's not always possible and usually not possible. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there's just something, you know, like I said, sports, we talked to a sports psychiatrist actually about, you know, when your sports fandom is formulated and because it is so ingrained in your identity, it happens at a much earlier age than other fandoms tend to happen. It feels like a personal attack when this thing that you love, um, is is coming under question and you kind of feel implicated also i think a lot of people feel guilty about continuing to root for these things and one of the things that we learned in the book and one of the things that we've said on this whole book tour is that you know we've all kind of we've got to like hold truth to power but we've all kind of got to be a little bit kinder to ourselves also like it is okay that i'm still a yankee fan even though not just a role as chapman but now domingo herman are on the team right um and and that is something that i will grapple with from a personal level but i can't i can't tell myself that i'm a horrible person that i you know have to unilaterally stop being a sports fan because these these dilemmas exist well, I mean, th this is, I mean, Brian knows that this is a, a subject that I find just endlessly fascinating, which is basically just compartmentalization. And, and the way we do this in all facets of life, whether you're talking about specific athletes, whether you're talking about like entertainment, for example, when you mentioned Michael Jackson, I don't think he's really been canceled at all. I mean, and like the moment I really realized he wasn't canceled was a couple of years ago, my daughter's school had a fundraiser at a roller rink and that they rented out and we we're on the on the floor skating and the dj was playing a bunch of michael jackson and this was like at an event dedicated towards small children yeah and the irony seemed to be uh acknowledged by nobody but you know i was just like this, this to me is definitive proof i mean and, and you look at his influence in music like if you really start 
peeling back the layers of the onion, you would have to start canceling Justin Timberlake and Bruno Mars and all these different people who've been influenced by Michael Jackson. And I think often it's just, it's about what emotionally resonates with people and therefore we're willing to do it. I mean, we do this with family. We yeah. put up, we put up with behavior from family members. Oh, trust we, me. We, yes. Yes. <laughs> and family I think is the worst. That's actually such a, that's actually a really good uh, analogy because I think it's actually much harder for people to draw moral lines when it's something close to them. And mm -hmm. I talk about this all the time, especially around sexual violence. Like it's way easier to like point your finger at some big institution or a school you don't care about or anywhere else. But if it's in your own community and you have to make personal choices about which relationships you're going to maintain and how you're going to put up boundaries, then people get a lot more uh, they don't want to make those choices. They don't want to have to be the arbiters. And so that's why I always touch a, I have a hard time when I publish about a school and it's like all of the rival schools, people are like really moral about that school having an issue. And I'm like, just wait, <laughs> like no. it's, it's your school too, but it's so much easier when, when it's outside of you. Right. And so I think the family, when, when it's like, you need to talk to your family, people get super defensive because that that's actually the hard work. And I wonder, I'm thinking about your question about institution versus individual mm -hmm. in sport and like how fans respond. And I would say that most of the time people don't want to deal with it at all. And so it's more like the way that they choose not to respond to it. Like institutional stuff is very difficult. It feels very amorphous. Like who's actually to blame? Uh, where, who, ha who do we hold accountable when FIFA is bad, right? Like it's the entire system. And then when you have an individual athlete, it's like, what do, what do we really know? How can we know it? Da -da -da. I mean, there's always like a different way that we can go about um, not caring. And so to me, I think there's all that work is being done. It's just done differently depending on sort of what entity like if is you actually. Want, if you want to deflect, you'll deflect it yeah. based on whether or not you want to deflect it. Yeah, I think so. Um, what a, I, your moral ambiguity has always been present in sports. I mean, you can go back a long way. And I think it's interesting that you guys, uh, the last chapter of the book is actually points out like sports have always been political. Um, and, you know, that could have been the first chapter. I think it's interesting that you made it the last. Um, what about the environment do you think has changed to make the kinds of questions, you know, the, the uncomfortable questions that you guys are putting forward in the book so much more a part of the conversation? And I'm sure so much more of a thing that generates angry emails and letters and uh, social media posts in your direction, because it, these were not things that were talked about when, when we were growing up uh, in sports. Well, they weren't things that were talked about when I was growing up in sports. I mean, like we didn't know about Chuck Knobloch until I was in my twenties. You know, um, I think that uh, I mean, I think one the the people who have come before us, frankly, like we are not the first people to be asking these questions and be talking about these things. Mm -hmm. um, and people have done this work for years. Um, I think that having a more diverse media landscape, even though we're still pretty homogeneous. Um, but having even the slight improvement in that area means that other people are emboldened to talk about these things that we want to talk about, right? Um, I think social media is a big part of it, Jessica. And I found each other through Twitter. And social media, particularly Twitter, is a place for marginalized communities. Twitter is extremely popular among people of color. Um, and, and it's a way to find communities of people 
who might think like you, who don't live near you necessarily, if you don't live in a, in a huge city or have a huge network near you. Um, and then, I mean, I think in the, if you just take the last year as an example, right? I mean, Jessica and I have been talking about, I've been writing for years about how athletes actually have a lot more power than they've ever either realize themselves or be able to realize, been allowed to realize by the by the institutions who manage them. But all we've done for the last year is hear from these institutions how much money they stand to lose if athletes don't go back to playing sports or if we don't, you know, if if we don't somehow get them back to the field or the pitch or the court. And that means that for a year, and this is you've seen this in in college, I think, in a much more stark way than even in the pros, because you did have, you know, pro athletes for the last couple of years using their platforms in these ways. But, you know, for the last year, we didn't have sports. And the people who had historically kind of been trying to clamp down on the rights and negotiating power and whatever of athletes themselves also had to tell them, no, like, we're worried about our bottom line if you don't play. And that's when kind of the light bulb goes off. And it's like, oh, you need us because we are the workforce. We are literally the product. Um, and, and that is something that I don't think has always gotten through. America in general is a very anti-labor nation, even when most of us are workers, most of us are labor. Um, but that's something that I think has started to shift in the last year and definitely in the last several years as 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 we've just created spaces to have these conversations. It's interesting. You just uh, brought up the, the idea that there are segments of the population that you know, the grand all of us are unfamiliar with or don't know each other. And I, I was curious, there, there's a chapter in the book about LGBTQ uh, athletes and the lack of inclusion that they often deal with, and in particular, the transgender community. How do you think is the best way to go about ingratiating them into sports? Because, and, I, and I ask because there's a lot about it that I truly don't know. And I think that is the case for a lot of people that, I mean, obviously, transphobia exists and it's an issue that has to be dealt with. But I think that particular question comes for a lot of people from a genuine place of not knowing, because I think it's very easy to go through your life not meeting somebody who is transgender. Or at least not realizing that you not have. realizing that you do yeah. not meeting, you know, I I live in Los Angeles, you know, very diverse city. I've been part of theater communities, artistic communities it, that included a lot of gay people in them. To the best of my knowledge, I don't know anybody transgender. And there's a lot of questions I know I've been asked about before, like on sports radio shows and things like that, where, you know, how to how to deal with this dilemma. And our response is usually, I don't know, because I don't, yeah. I think, I think information that you purvey is very important. And it, it's, I, I want to be very careful about not giving out information that can be harmful in either direction. I would say transgender athletes, genderqueer, non-binary, anyone who is operating outside of our normal idea of the binary is real scary for sports people because all of sports is built on that binary. And so what does it mean if we're pushing uh, on those edges? And uh, and we do have to be careful because this is like real harm that it, that is done to people who don't fit. These, these people in particular who are marginalized within our community often face a ton of violence for that yeah. in, in their lives, right? So we have to be very careful in how we talk about it. I would say um, this is such a good question. I'm trying to 
I mean, I, I would tell people to go it's, read Katie Barnes at ESPNW, uh, everything they have written. Katie is non-binary and we interviewed them for the, for the book, but I just think their work in general is really good. And one thing that I have learned from Katie over the years, I've interviewed them a couple of times for my podcast. Uh, when we talk about trans athletes, there is this real focus on the professional level and like what is happening, like is, and it's only part of what's going on here is an intense sexism. So we focus really intensely on uh on trans women because we think it's on that that right. cis men are going to dress up as women and and go in and just take over women's sports and there's a sexism undercurrent there that says that like any man could just dress up as a woman and suddenly they're going to be better because women aren't good at sports like that's kind of like an under and so it's always trans women that we're focused on we almost always do it at the professional level we're obsessed with this idea that somehow this is going to mess up um the the fairness of sport whatever the fuck mm -hmm. that means uh but katie focuses a lot on youth and youth sports and if we think about it in that way like what i think it really pushes on sports fans too to really think about like how much do you give a shit about these like, is it worth harming yeah. a child to 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 hold these things in your hands so strongly and we're now seeing laws being put up in front of state legislators where they want, I mean, this is so upsetting. It makes me so upset to even think about it. But the idea that they're going to do gender, che genital checks on yeah. children to make sure that sports are fair, like that is assault on children for what? And so I really do think like when we think about it on the youth level and like what this means to these incredibly marginalized children as it is, like just let them fucking run, man. Like what? Where is the real hurt? And there's also the other thing I'll just say is that we always want to focus on the maybe one, two, three that have won something instead of like all the other trans athletes who don't win shit ever and don't take away anything from anyone ever. They just want to be out there. Right. And so part of it is like pushing back on that narrative, pointing that out, saying that over and over again. I also would point people to Chris Moser, the other person that uh, we interviewed in that chapter is a trans man. People don't like to talk about Chris because he's really good at what he does, but he doesn't fit that sort of sexist narrative around uh, trans athletes. And I do think that there's more and more literature out there. We're hearing from trans athletes more and more. There was recently like a ban in rugby for just a straight up ban on, on trans athletes. And there were all these trans women who came out to, uh, if it was only against trans women in rugby, uh, to, to talk about not just like why that's hurtful to, to them, but like what the sport means to them. And it always, it's like, these are the communities that accept them and, and help them transition and, and become the person that they've always felt that they are. And I just think the more you hear from those people and, and what their actual experiences are and, and why sport is important to them, I think those are the kind of things that start to break this down. But I think you're right to say I don't know because you can really do harm by by speaking about this in the wrong way. That was yeah, that was kind of the only thing I was going to add. And Jessica's so good on on these issues, and I was very proud and lucky to work with Katie when I was at ESPN. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that too many people would have answered the question <laughs> without <laughs> fully knowing, you know. Um, well, especially in you know in sports media, it always has to do, be a debate, and typically one person has to take one side. Or right. you have to take. So you're debating you, someone's humanity, right. well, and yeah. we and haven't even you mentioned have to do it in an authoritative way. Yes, like that. and, and I, the also race matters here. Like yes. we tend to think of black women as more masculine. They get they're the ones 
whose genitals we got to look at all the time, right? Like, there's also a race issue which goes into like sports media and how like to have two to have two white men debate this issue is just like there's just so much cringy about that. And then on top of that, like the lack of knowledge. It's, but then you, yeah. I mean, you get you get what you what you what we've been seeing in you know broader news from you know as a result of cable news yeah. is just a bunch of people who don't who aren't experts on this talking about it. And frankly, there are trans writers who should be covering trans athletes, um, and and we're not giving those people jobs also. And and that's that's kind of how we can continue to move forward in in, in this debate. How how much do sports issues like this? Because you know, oftentimes my 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 criticism of a lot of these, you know, the world is ending debates is that so much of it is like, you know, is, is a, a, a solution in search of a problem. Like, you know, uh -huh. it's, it's not like the world is being flooded, as you say, Jessica, with, you know, thousands and thousands of men who are invading women's sports. Like, you know, like, like that. There's not literally a not a single, no, no one can not, find an incident of that. It's yeah. not a thing, but, but whether it's, the issue of trans athletes, whether it's the issue of uh, athletes kneeling for the anthem or Black Lives Matter or whatever, how much do people outside of sports, uh, certainly inside, but even outside of sports, like to use sports as a proxy for these larger arguments and these larger questions all um, that they have? Yeah. All the time. I mean, I, I will, I bring this up all the time. Colin Kaepernick knelt for two preseason games before anyone even noticed. Yes. Nobody noticed. Um, literally nobody noticed. There were, you know, people in the WNBA doing this. Yes, you can say they didn't have national exposure or as big of a platform, sure. But literally nobody noticed that Colin Kaepernick was kneeling until somebody noticed. And then it became a referendum on a broader problem of Black Lives Matter. And it honestly, then that's when you had people like me going on MSNBC and CNN to talk about this, because then you had people who didn't really care about sports wanting to talk about this broader movement that we had, that absolutely sports has played a part in. Sports has always played a part in furthering civil rights and furthering social justice and all of that. But then you have people using it as a really front-facing way to point to the boogeyman in what could go wrong in this movement, right? It is very, very easy to just point at Colin Kaepernick and not say very much and have a bunch of people be scared of what he's kneeling for, be scared of, 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 of what he represents um, and what he could start. And it's just, it's low hanging fruit, frankly, for the bad actors that we know exist in all sects of our society um, who are looking for the next, you know, the next unwilling mascot, if you will, for what they would, the messaging that they want to further and sports, sports can be used in that, in that way, very nefariously. And I would say like our sports and politics chapter, like you said, is the last one in the book and it begins with Kaepernick and ends with Kaepernick because he's sort of the face of what this looks like in the modern day. But the point of that chapter too, was to point out that sports and politics, little P politics, uh, big P politics, whatever, yeah, have always been, have always all been, the letters. It's fine. yeah, they've just always been joined. Like one of the things I think about a lot is that we call them political races. Like we use the word race because we've taken it from sports, you know, politicians, love to throw out the first pitch like you know the military spent all this money <laughs> gave it to the nfl to like do their propaganda that there's a way that these things are always mixed together uh we just don't we don't want to talk about it unless we're like scared again sports is as kavitha said little c conservative sometimes big c conservative but in general 
conservative in, in nature. And so anything that's pushing uh, in any direction away from the tradition uh, scares people. And certainly that's as true with politics as anything else. And so, yeah, as it becomes a proxy for like a much bigger discussion. I mean, it's also a function of just who is watching what sports, who is watching sports in general, the reach that sports obviously have, right? A hundred million people-ish watch the Super Bowl, right? That's just, you know, that's, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to have your political ad spend <laughs> um, during the Super Bowl or during a college football game. College football was brought up in the presidential debate um, because it was something that, you know, more people watch sports than vote. So it's a, it's a, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a, Sad commentary, I know, on on state of things. I I did work trying to register voters for what it's worth. I mean, I, <laughs> stop blaming me. I did I, my part. Yeah, listen, I. <laughs> it's, it's not a you took that personally. It's really interesting. <laughs> I mean, I spent a lot. Look, you you have no idea how much Jessica. I hate talking to strangers. Like Brian knows this. Like this yeah. this was a big ask of me to like just call random people. I was like, sure but you registered. know Kavitha. You've met Kavitha. Oh, it's okay if we have Jessica also. Yeah, like <laughs> she's a stranger, but she's just a friend you haven't met. Yeah, <laughs> like it really. I, I I do take it personally because for me, just that type of action just it just speaks to how much I really wanted people to vote because yeah. I I don't ever want to see those people in real life. Yeah, our least favorite thing to do when we were like deep in the sort of ESPN stuff, they'd send us out to do story. man on the street interviews were like my, I'd always come back and be like, nobody would talk to me. Like, because I didn't ask because <laughs> because they thought I was a weirdo in the corner hiding. Right. And nobody talked <laughs> nope. to me. I love to listen to like investigative journalism podcasts where they go and knock on people's doors and see if they answer. Cause I, there's something like, I get so nervous for them. And <laughs> like that whole thing, <laughs> like living vicariously. Cause yeah, I find that. Yeah, yeah, that idea is terrifying. Not for me. <laughs> I just watch Night Stalkers, so maybe like. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't knock on people's doors. I don't know. That's just not a thing that I do. That's yeah, I mean, that, was, that for me was like the one. I mean, and literally one upside of the pandemic is I had an excuse to do this, not knocking on doors, right? Where I at least had the barrier of the phone. Right. Opposed, I, like I don't know if I could do the knock. I and I, this election was really important to me. I still don't know if I could have knocked on the doors. Yeah. I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was knocking on doors important. But you, yeah. it's you, you guys. It was effective. So yeah. thank you. It worked. Thank you, Andy. Well, thank you for your service. All three of you are welcome. Um, um, it, it's interesting, really quick, uh, Brian. But you, you had just mentioned the investigative reporting angle uh, that that you find fascinating, Jessica. And there's, I think it's towards the end of the book, uh, Kavitha. There, there's a line in there where you say, like Jessica. A lot of my sports coverage over the years has centered on domestic violence and sexual assault, as well as the eternal questions of how much, if anything, we learn from each incident. And that in and of itself would make it feel like sports doesn't love you back. You sound like you're both reporters like on a courthouse or police crime beat, as opposed to being sports reporters. With that in mind, what keeps you both going in this space? Because it would be incredibly easy to get disheartened. I'll go first, I guess. I love sports so much. I mean, I last week was a really bad week in Texas, to say the least. It was incredibly hard. Uh, one of the best things that happened last week was that Naomi Osaka played Serena Williams in Australia, and I got to watch it on television. And I that brought me so much joy. So part of it is just like how much I get from sports and this desire to have it be more inclusive. I mean, I have 
a different answer when it comes to like the investigative journalism around sexual violence and uh, institutional response to sure. it, which is certainly that survivors tell me it's important to them. And I've done stuff that has changed institutions and you try to hold those those things close to your heart because sometimes you do it and you don't do a damn thing. <laughs> and those are those are certainly tough times. Yeah, I mean to that to that part of, of my answer, you know, for every 10 dude who doesn't want to talk about domestic violence, there's always one who who will send you a note and is like, you changed my view on this, or I learned something from you, or I'm going to be able to talk to my wife or daughter differently about this. And I kind of understand their perspective more. Um, and then you have other survivors who come forward and, and either they come forward as a compound effect, um, which is something that we're seeing in baseball right now with sexual harassment, um, or they just come forward to you personally and they say, it was important for me to read this. And that, that makes all the difference, frankly. Um, and then the other side of that is, man, I just love sports. <laughs> I'm very, I mean, listen, like so much of what we cover is really hard and I'm not going to lie and, and say that it doesn't take an emotional toll. It absolutely does. I mean, 2016 and 2017 with the election, with, you know, some of the more kind of high profile incidents um, that we, that we had to cover in sports was really emotionally hard for me and mentally difficult for me um, to continue going in this space. But I think, you know, part of it is, again, like I, I do, I do love these sports. I, I always, there's also something about like my fandom that continues to give me hope and it's totally irrational. And I think a lot of people can relate to this, that when your team doesn't win, you know, you probably grieve for a couple of months and you're going to be salty about it when the season restarts. But then there is this kind of rebirth and, you know, um, I don't know, unless you're a Knicks fan, really, like you can, you know, you can kind of say, which I am, but you can kind of say like, this is a new season. Um, and we've actually had some, some things to look forward to with the Knicks this season, which is crazy, but they're going to break my heart again. Um, you're, you're just one game below 500 right now. Kavita, you can get there. Yes, but you know, we're going to trade like, Oh, you know we're going to trade Julius Randle for like 17 guys who are older than him somehow, right? Like that's just going to happen. Tibbs, baby. Um, I mean, yeah, the Derrick Rose signing don't even get me started. But I think, <laughs> I think, I think another part of of that is also um, like defiance, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to let all of these shitty people kick me out of this thing that I've loved for my entire life. Um, just because I'm trying to make it a little bit better. And the loudest voices in the room have been super loud for the last few years, you know, um, but we're still here. And, you know, I think that there's still a long ways to go, but I'm, I'm you know, we're going to continue to put the work in. Is that, is that kind of a form of the same kind of compartmentalization where like recognition that Trevor Bauer isn't sports? Like, you know, you know, Chapman doesn't have to, that FIFA isn't sports. Like these are bad things that are sports related, but that's not necessarily what makes sports sports. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot of compartmentalization that goes on. Um, and I think that, well, first of all, just, I mean, everyone here can, can relate to this. The nature of being a sports journalist is having to have compartmentalized your fandom at some point, right? Because like journalism and fandom don't go together, but none of us do this without having been fans, without having grown up as fans, right? So, you know, I 
when I cover the Yankees, I really compartmentalize. When Derek Jeter announced his retirement, the column I wrote was called, now can the Yankees get a shortstop with range? And my <laughs> happy with me. Um, but it was it was completely accurate, right? What, where, what does God think of that? <laughs> God gave me a pass. Um, okay. I, I wrote my love letter to what Derek Jeter's career meant to me. Um, the night that I got back from his last ever game. And I made it very clear that I had my fan hot hat on and not my journalism hat. But that's such compartmentalization, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the nature of what we do for a living and where it comes from. So along those lines, you take it a step further and you're like, okay, well, not only do I have to compartmentalize in being a sports fan, I have to compartmentalize being a woman sometimes. I have to compartmentalize being a sexual assault survivor. I have to compartmentalize, you know, um, all of these other other things that that we may and may not have experienced in our lives um, that in order to do our jobs properly. So sometimes it makes it a little bit easier. And, and you know, I think sometimes you go home and, and everything kind of settles on you and that's mm. when it's taken. And I will say, like, even doing this work and feeling a certain way and having my morals or whatever, there are still times where I'm like, I don't want to know this. Like, please, like, I don't, I just wish I didn't know any of this, that I could just watch this without thinking about it. Like, there are times where I watch things and I just don't tell anybody because I don't want, like, any, I just don't want to have to, like, share that with my choice with anybody right. else, you know? Like, I we do that too, so it's yeah. not as if, I mean, I get it. Like, that's, a, like, the thing is, like, I get why sports fans react this way we do it too um but you know overall i just i don't know i just want more people to feel like sports loves them back it's such a good feeling when it happens well what you, that, that story you tell about you know what the the feeling you get about watching women's sports like and what that does to you, like that that is the reason it needs to be more inclusive and, and, and like, i covered the women's there. world cup in france and i was at the opener and they all come out onto the pitch and I was like in the press box, freezing cold, which is my memory of it. But I was trying to be like, you know, a good mm -hmm. unemotional journalist. journalist. Right. And I was like, don't cry, Jessica, don't cry. <laughs> like I really was just like so overwhelmed by That's... the moment. Yeah. Every time it gets me. Um, I, 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 there's one thing we want to get to uh, from Kavitha's Twitter feed before we leave, uh, but real quick, and this does not, not need to be a long answer. Are, are we in Los Angeles destined to get screwed like every other Olympic city in 2028? Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I mean, like just, just one thing that we bring up from our chapter a lot is the militarization of, of local yeah. police when the Olympics happen and LAPD is already real scary. So and I'm real nervous about ICE. ICE is going to get, you know, federal agencies get a lot more jurisdiction within local spaces. So, yeah. So, it's, it's, and I think the important takeaway there is it's more than infrastructure that doesn't get used. And so much of the, you know, the pitch around LA was like, well, you don't have to build a velodrome. We have a velodrome. You don't have to build a yeah. stadium. We have stadiums, but there are other, these ancillary, it's, it's a really fascinating chapter in the book that people should, should take a look at. Um, all right. So before we let you go, Ted Lasso. You want to talk about a reason to love sports? Oh, the best. <laughs> it's like a real palate cleanser, Ted Lasso, from like everything that happened in 2020. Kavitha, you just binged it in like a in like a day, correct? The reason I binged it is I was I, I finished Schitt's Creek and I finished Kim's Convenience, and then I watched the Hotel Cecil 
documentary and I watched Night Stalker and, you know, lots of, lots of just the state of the world, right? So I was like, I need to binge something that is going to be heartwarming that I know people have recommended. And I'm just like, I'm not an Apple user. So I, like, I'm like an Android Chrome, all of that, whatever. Um, but so I, 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 was lent somebody's Apple TV login and I binged Ted Lasso <laughs> in the course of allegedly uh, of allegedly in the course of one sitting and it was delightful and I'm so happy about the show and I'm, I I know people my sister is not a sports fan she humors me frankly but she was the first person to be like Kavitha you got to watch Ted Lasso this <laughs> is the show is great so yeah it's perfect it's a perfect show it makes you just feel so good yeah. Just, yeah, I love uh, it. Can I also like, like, am I the so? I think Roy Kent might be my 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 ideal man, even though he's not Irish, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, but Roy Kent, British Adam. We just had this whole talk, Kavitha, about inclusiveness, and then you <laughs> you you make this man be Irish. This this ideal man. I know. I'm sorry. I tend to date Irishmen. It's a it's a whole other thing. But <laughs> <laughs> but Roy Kent. Kind of looks like a British loving actor. Irishman when they don't love you back. Oh, <laughs> poor Kavitha! <laughs> Tell me who Roy Kent looks like. Who? Adam Levine, but like not hipster and annoying. <laughs> what <guess>. is that? <laughs> I guess it's Roy Kent. I know. I see it. Last night I watched Far from a Matting, Far from the Matting Crowd, which is like a romance from five years ago or whatever, six years ago, and Juno Temple is a side, the Keeley is just yeah. a minor character and I did not recognize her at all. But I'm one of those people that always checks IMDb to see like everyone that I'm watching in a movie. And I was like, that, what, no, like I could not believe it, but she is so, per everyone is perfect on that Can show. Can I do Lasso on like an actually kind of serious, kind of related to the kind of work that Jessica and I do note. Um, I, I had this whole outpouring of men on Twitter who, were endeared to the show and who didn't expect to be emotionally um, emotional about the show. And there's so much positive in it about male relationships that we don't always cover and we don't allow space for, which I think is also really nice to see. Yeah, that's, that's a good true. point. But I actually think that's something that, that I, I think is so valuable in today's sports and today's athlete is young males, particularly young black males, being willing to show vulnerability in terms of whether it's mental health, whether it's, you know, just sort of emotional, it's kind of rejecting a lot of the, the always needing to be like, you know, cold, hard, whatever it might be, you know, killer mentality. And you can still go out and just crush people when you play. I think that is monumentally transformational in terms of how athletes present themselves uh, and the lessons that people take away from their athletes. And it's one of the, I think the most positive things that we've seen in years. Yeah, I totally agree. And that was another thing COVID brought to the fore. You know, we got to see the bubbles and they were great for COVID, but we also got to hear a lot about like the mental strain and how difficult all of that was. And athletes were willing to talk about it in a way that, yeah, we probably wouldn't have heard a yeah, decade I, ago. I tell, I tell this a lot, you know, just Andy and I are not above, you know, the, the taking the easy joke, funny Trump's mean, all that kind of stuff. You know, and so when Paul George has all of his struggles in the playoffs and pandemic P and all that stuff, and you know, you make the jokes and you you make the evaluations, and he comes out. I I felt like such an asshole. Like, oh yeah, by the way, 
I'm like really depressed in here and it sucks and this is horrible. And you know, I think my, and I was like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, yeah. you have to, you forget these are human beings. They're well compensated. They get to do cool stuff. They are still people. Um, and so I appreciated Paul George reminding me of that. Well, and um, not, they're not superhuman. And this is one of the reasons I'm always saying one of the reasons that we love sports so much is it's the closest that we get to mythology in modern mm-hmm. day. See these completely human people, human beings doing these, accomplishing these superhuman physical and mental feats. And it makes us forget their humanity, but their humanity is what makes what they do superhuman. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that next generation of athlete that's coming up. Yeah, for sure. And just the level of tolerance that you see from, like, like it's like all things, you know, just young people hopefully will lead us forward better than, than we are. Um, so we'll see. Um, the book is really well worth picking up. It is, it deals with a lot of, uh, of important issues. It is uncomfortable at times to read, um, no question, but it really ends, I think on a lot of, a, a an optimistic yeah. note in the same sort of the same ways that you guys have been able to point out over the course of this conversation. It's loving sports when they don't love you back. Kavitha Davidson, uh, and Jessica Luther, the authors are also the host Kavitha, the lead podcast on the athletic, which is every day. Uh, and burn it all down from Jessica. Um, you can catch the, all those wherever you get your podcasts, as they say. Thank you guys so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. This is fun. Thanks for having us. Great. All right. So that was that was cool. Um, the you know two. Oh, you're muted. Oh, yeah. Wait. Hold on. Um, so. This is the book. If you, if you missed it, we put it up earlier. That's the book, uh, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, uh, Dilemma, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. It really gets into a lot of different stuff. It's not just about you know some of the problematic athletes, but also you know things that the NCAA does, what it means to have the Olympics or build a stadium and all these other places where we as fans uh, kind of have to make choices about, about what we support and what we don't and why, as Kavitha said, it's sort of okay to give yourself a little space to still be a fan. Um, even Andy, while you sort of try to do better and, you know, sort of at least try to acknowledge some of these well, issues. I mean, look, the, the truth is we are all hypocrites with this stuff on some level, whether it's sports or, or something else, sports, entertainment. Uh, like I said before, the way you often will make allowances for family members and would shun somebody different doing the exact same thing as that mm-hmm. family member. You know, we, you know, I talked before about that, you know, that moment at the roller skating rink uh, with my daughter for that fundraiser and, you know, noting the, you know, extreme irony of this DJ playing tons of Michael Jackson at an event with kids. But like, you know, as somebody who's a really big music fanatic and, you know, likes to learn as much as I can and takes it pretty seriously. Like I am a massive James Brown fan and I've been a big James Brown fan for a long, Mm -hmm. long time. That requires you to compartmentalize a lot of really, really bad behavior. And, and you, you come to understand the roots of a lot of it because James Brown grew up in an absolutely hellish atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I mean, like he, he grew up in just brutal circumstances, which obviously shaped his entire worldview on everything. It shaped who he became as an artist, a collaborator, a boss of a band, everything. And he could be cruel to the people around him. He could be abusive 
to the people around him. And he could do this sometimes in ways that were criminal. He is also one of the most indelibly influential artists in music history. Yeah. Like he, he is one in terms of modern, you know, pop rock R&B sort of all melded together. You would be hard pressed to find anybody you could argue is more influential than James Brown. Maybe a few people at his level, but you know, without James Brown, rap arguably doesn't exist. Yeah, and the, the the whole the whole range of things. It's like certain certain people are easy. It's easy for me to do. You know, Greg Hardy. But you start to move down the ladder of like, and it is it is complicated. It is something that we do. Um, it is largely, like you say. It's largely dictated by the emotional connections that you have to these specific people, these specific entities. Uh, I think it often has to do with when you first made that connection, where you were in your life, you know, a, when you're a teenager and you don't have a lot of responsibilities other than being in school and discovering who you are, like these things make massive impressions on you. And, you know, I, I, I don't lionize James Brown as a person, but you know, I I can't help but lionize him as an artist, and, and you listen to music, and so it's right. like it's it's just it's one of those things that is. But it I have is to, complicated, but I have to be and, it, and, and it's doing. and that's the and that's sort of the, the 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 book isn't so much about how to solve those problems for they don't they don't answer the question for you. These are no. personal decisions, everybody. But it really does lay out very well some of the dilemmas that that fans face when and and i think to the the betterment of sports in the long run that we're actually starting to to look at these questions now much more than we ever did certainly when i was growing up then you know even when we started in this in this in this world we ask these questions and we hold leagues more responsible we hold teams more responsible to at least try to do better and i think ultimately uh it will be a better thing for sports um so again, thank you to, to Kavitha and to Jessica for joining us tonight. Uh, tomorrow, Sopan Deb from the New York Times covers basketball. He's great. He's an author, really fun guy. We've had him on before. Uh, so we're excited to get him back. Wednesday, Sabrina Merchant. Thursday, Jorge Castillo. Uh, we'll be a little baseball. We have the baseball, Andy. Spring training started. I know. Jesus. Spring training, man. Uh, and then Friday, Dave Schilling. And then uh, we've got, we've got hey. some really fun guests that we're trying to line up. Interesting stuff, particularly over the All-Star break when when sports will take a little bit of a break, a little pause uh, that LeBron James needs. Uh, so, again, thanks uh, for everyone. And, and we'll won't see, get. And we'll see everybody tomorrow. Dr. Nino Lanza.